As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're starting a new teaching series this morning, and it's called Their Own Eyes. And it's a study on the book of Judges, and the title of the series is taken from the very last verse in the book of Judges. And that verse says this, in Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this verse encapsulates the the political, spiritual, and moral position of God's people. They have no earthly king that they follow that leads them, nor do they have a heavenly king that they submit themselves to, right? And they very much do whatever is right in their own eyes. And whenever anyone does what's right in their own eyes, bad things can happen. Why is that? Uh, Because for people, doing what is right in their own eyes isn't always what's best. And what God has done for his people up to this point is that he has given Moses, he's had Moses lead them, okay, lead the children of God out of slavery, okay, under the reign of the Egyptians. He has led them into the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. And God has, has established with his people law, Okay, he's, give it, he's given them law, he's given them structure, he establishes that he is their God and that they will be his people. He shows them how to live, he gives them commands, all of these things God promises to be with them. Moses leads them right up to the edge of the promised land and, and then he dies. And who takes over for Moses? Anybody remember? Joshua, okay? Joshua takes the reins from there. Okay, leads God's people into the promised land, uh, begins to take conquest, begins to have victory, begins to, the, the, the land that God promised to all of his people, God is now given to his people, okay? And Joshua again says, listen, if you, if you stay with the Lord, okay, if you submit your life to him, you give yourselves to him, he will be with you, he will stay with you. So Joshua does his part, and then he lays his head down for the very last time, and he passes away. So Moses is dead, Joshua is dead, this brings us to the book of Judges. And if you compare the the rise of the Israelite empire to a child growing up, okay, so for example, if Moses and Joshua are considered like the infancy stage and, and the kingship of like David and Solomon is sort of the coming of age, uh, becoming a teenager, getting stronger, the book of Judges is probably like a terrible twos. Okay, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Just the, the selfishness of the toddler, everything's about them, screaming, whining, everything needs to be their way. Got a two-year-old at home right now. That's where the book of Judges is happening, okay? Because when you turn open to the book of Judges, the people there are an absolute mess, okay? Um, this, the book of Judges could be taken right out of the Jerry Springer show. Okay, these people are a train wreck, uh, they are faithless, they are often cowards, they are rebellious, and they are wicked. They are so many things, but if they should be anything to you and I, it should give us hope. It should give us hope because as jacked up as they are, and as jacked up as we often are, God is loving towards them, he is forgiving of them, he is patient with them, and he sees them through to the end. He is with them the entire way, okay? So here's how I want to frame what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, most people like board games. 
There's some people that don't like board games. And so kids, teenagers, I want you to think for a minute, what are some of your favorite board games? Give them to me. What? What did I hear? Okay. What are some of your favorite ones? What? Mancala. Okay. Chess. Chess. Monopoly. Okay. Big classic there. Okay. So let's talk Monopoly for a minute. Okay. I'll do this one when we come up. Um, there are a lot of unwritten rules in Monopoly. Like a lot of people make up their own rules sort of as they go. There's sort of like these standing rules. Okay. Um, so for example, how many of you playing Monopoly have ever put a 500 in the middle of the board to start the game? Yep. Okay. All right. Not in the rule book. Okay. It's just something that somebody added. Uh, some Monopoly players, anytime that you pay a tax, you put money in the middle to earn whenever you land on free parking. Not in the rule book. Some Monopoly players, if you land directly on go, instead of, get, instead of getting the regular $200, you get $400. Okay? Not in the rule book. Okay, so there's, there's lots of different rules that people sort of make along the way as they play these games. And so uh, these worlds exist, these board games are created kind of with their own world, and we tend to add rules to them. My wife and I play a game, uh, we haven't played it as much just as we have kids, but there's a board game called Settlers of Catan, if anybody's played that one before. Um, we have, uh, it's kind of like a building resource type game. Anyways, uh, we have developed rules of our own just because it kind of speeds the game up and it makes it more fun. And nine times out of ten, that's why we change the rules, right? That's why we make up the rules that we do because we tend to think that it either speeds the game up or it makes it more fun. And that's fine in the world of board games, okay? You can kind of pick and choose as you want to do that. But what God has done for you and I is he has created this world for us, Okay? He, ha he has crafted us, he has made you and I in his image, and he has given us a purpose. He has set into motion all of those things, but he has also set into motion a certain set of rules that we are to follow. And so what, when people do what's right in their own eyes, when they change the terms, they make up their own rules. And often, they think the, make, the rules that they make up are better. And don't we do that sometimes? That God has established certain rules, certain boundaries, and we think that we know better. We think that the rules that we kind of tweak make life a little bit better. And so when we flip open to the book of Judges, the people did what they wanted to do. Just like today, people do what they kind of want to do, right? People do what is right in their own eyes. And today our culture is not only does what it wants to do, it does what it wants to believe, but it often believes and does what it wants to do and it thinks that it's virtuous okay all right so let's look at this verse for a minute okay when you do what's right in your own eyes it feels good to do what's right isn't it doesn't it it makes a person feel good now we live in a society today that whenever you believe that what you do is right if it's really really right then then it's virtuous it's distinguished it should be celebrated okay and so think about that for a minute think about how that affects people Think about how uh, that gets people to champion certain causes and, and lead, lead movements in certain directions, okay? Um, think about some of the topics that, that dominate our headlines, okay, in our news cycle, okay? One of them would be issues about human sexuality, right? 
like transgenderism, homosexuality, all of those things, God's plan for that, God's plan for, uh, for intimacy, uh, for sex, have been designed to take place in a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Okay? So when, while that's the rule that God has set in place, there are people that are choosing that lifestyle, and they celebrate it. They consider it virtuous. They consider it uh, something worth celebrating. And we have, our country has an entire month dedicated to celebrating that pride. Okay? Not only should it be celebrated, but everyone should celebrate it. You should celebrate it. It's considered a virtue, right? There is, there's also a very promiscuous nature to our society, isn't it? That it, it's celebrated for people to be, to be promiscuous, that it's seen somehow as, as a body liberation, that, we, that it's our body and we can choose to do whatever we want with it. Okay, that's true. That's true of promiscuity. That's also true of the abortion debate, isn't it? That, that it's our body, that, that this side believes that life is sacred, this is what the Word of God says. You should preserve life at all cost. Okay? You should have the baby where this side says it's virtuous for a woman to have that independence. It's virtuous for a woman to have uh, that, that body liberation. And those are so diametrically opposed. Right? We see how this is such a debate within the church. We see how this is such a debate in our culture and in the political sphere because either one is right and the other's wrong. There is very little middle ground in this. And so people often do what's right in their own eyes and they consider it virtuous. Okay, this is true of, of how our culture elevates party, like drunkenness, violence, the pursuit of wealth at all costs. There's so many things that our culture celebrates and considers a virtue that's right in their own eyes and that's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so like, like a board game, we often pick and choose and we get to decide what applies to us. We submit to and determine what is good, what is evil, what is virtuous, and what is right in our own eyes. It doesn't work like that. Because at the end of the day, if we only submit ourselves to God, if we only follow God when we agree with him, we're not following the Lord. We're just following ourselves. Okay, so this is the condition that we find the people in Judges. When we open up the book of Judges, we see them changing the rules. We meet a group of people without a leader, a God that they submit to when it's convenient for them. And God has given them the assignment to conquer the land, to drive out the Canaanites, to take the land for themselves. Now, when you hear the term Canaanites, and you'll hear that kind of throughout the series, uh, the Canaanites are, are not just one group of people, but they're multiple groups of people, okay? Um, it's sort of like if there were, if, if there were uh, another country that were going to drive out the Americans, okay? There's lots of different Americans, right? There's the, the Alabamians, there's the Floridians, there's the Arkansans, there's the um, Mississippians, is that, okay, is that right? Three weeks in, I wasn't sure, Okay. Um, but, but we'll get in the text and we'll, we'll read about the Midianites oppressing God's people. We'll read about the Philistines oppressing God's people, the Jebusites. There's lots of different Canaanites and they're all kind of in different territories. Um, but there's also something that I want to point out. And this is just sort of a side note. There are many people that view God's ordained genocide of the Canaanites as a problem. 
Like sometimes we sort of gloss over that God says, go and wipe these people out and leave nothing behind, drive them out. Um, that's, we'll discuss that at, at a later date, okay, in another sermon. Um, but I just wanted to let you guys that that is coming and, and we'll have a talk about that. Um, but God has led his people to take the land of Canaan and he has promised to make them into a great nation. And he tells these tribes that if they are, that they're to run out and drive out the inhabitants of the land. Those that lived in the land were pagan. They worshiped many pagan gods. Uh, God did not want his people intermingling and intermarrying with them. He knew that if they did, if they coexisted together, that these people would leave his people astray, that they would begin worshiping other gods, that they would begin uh, marrying each other's, marrying within each other's tribes, and it would be bad news, okay? So it would, it would be like your son uh, coming home from college, and he brings home this cute little Canaanite girl um, named Esmeralda. Okay, Ezzy, tell us more about yourself. Okay, tell me about your family, where you're from. And says, well, uh, you know, my dad is, he's the leader of the Canaanite army. And um, he, he actually just slaughtered 400 people just yesterday. And uh, he, he let me have uh, all, a lot of the jewelry that he took from like these 400 people that he killed and enslaved. And I got this, this necklace that says, it says Roxanne on it. Don't know who she is, but she won't need it anymore. And my mom... She is, she is the, the temple matron. She leads all of the worship and the, and the sacrifices, the human sacrifices. And I really like participating in the infant sacrifice. That's some of my favorite parts. Like this is the kind of like culture that, that, it, that is living within this region. And so God, obviously, just like you wouldn't necessarily want little Billy to marry into that family, Okay, God doesn't want his people intermingling and mixing with them. And so uh, God's assignment to them is to drive them out. Okay, do not enslave them. Do not take their women. Do not marry their men. Do not take even their animals. Okay, don't even take their animals because by living among them, you consume their culture. And whether you like it or not, it changes you. Our, our, our culture changes us. Our culture influences us. And, and culture is a funny thing. Okay, um, God knew that these things would wreck the Israelite culture. And, and the way that civilizations work and the way that cultures work is very interesting. I ran across uh, this quote just recently on civilizations. And, and there, is, there is a cycle that many of them follow from their conception to their demise. And I'm not sure if you could see this on the screen, but a, a Scottish historian from the 1700s, okay? So this was really before America. You'll probably hear a little bit of America in this, but this is before America really even hit, his, hit its prime uh, because this man passed away uh, probably before 1776. But his name is Alexander uh, Titler, and this is what he said. He said, The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. Now, you think the Roman Empire is, is much greater. It's been around for much longer, but then you've got empires that uh, maybe only lasted 20 years, maybe 30 years. Um, but if you think about it, 1976 would be America's 200-year old birthday, right? So let me finish the quote. These nations have progressed through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness. From selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependency. From dependency back 
to bondage. So you can see the cycle that goes in that. And so you could, you could look at this. You could, if you, if you study histories, if you study culture, you can think of examples of this, of where a certain country went wrong. And you may look at this and think, as Americans, where are we? Where are we? Are we, are we at complacency? Are we at apathy? Some of us would say that we're already back in bondage. That's up for you to decide. But the book of Judges follows a similar cycle. Okay, And as we, as we get into the book of Judges and actually start reading about some of these, these judges and some of these heroes, it follows a, a similar cycle, a more simplistic cycle. Okay, uh, Whenever we open up those pages, we'll, we'll read that, that the people have been living in sin and not after too long of doing that, they become oppressed by a people group, whether it's the Midianites, whether it's the Philistines. They are oppressed by these people. They will soon begin to cry out to God in repentance. God, where are you? God, save us. God, come and help us. And so in God hearing them, he sends a deliverer. He sends a judge, uh, not as we would think as a, a judge wearing a black robe or a gavel or Judge Judy, but these were uh, military leaders. These were, these were uh, mostly men. There is a woman mixed into this group, but they would lead God's people uh, to some battle, to some victory, and, and the people would repent and peace would return to the land. People would remember who God was. They would celebrate who God was. But it's not too long after that. You can see sort of their gaze fixed on the idols, okay? Back to sin. It doesn't take long for us to begin to wander from the presence of the Lord, wander from that peace, and find ourselves back into this sin cycle. And so the peace that we'll see too, as, as we get into the text, um, the peace that lasts is normally for about 40 years. Okay, so about one generation. And why is that the case? Why does this happen? There's a passage in Judges chapter 2, if, if you want to turn there and sort of mark this. And, and Judges chapter 2, I think, does a great job of, of summarizing this cycle and what we're going to see time and time again. And it says this. It says, All the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. It's a pretty good run. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gesh. Verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning they passed away. They gathered with their fathers in their graves. And there arose and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. So this generation that was with Joshua, okay, that saw him do all of these amazing things. They were with Joshua when the walls of Jericho fell. They were with Joshua when the sun stood still in the middle of the day all day so that God's people could pursue their, and defeat their enemies. Look it up, okay? All of the things that they saw, that generation had passed away and a new generation arose who, who did not know those stories. Or maybe, maybe they knew those stories, but their faith was their parents. Their faith was never their own. God was never real to them. God's, God was stories that their parents told. Okay, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
And so the term Baal here is actually a Canaanite for lowercase lord, okay? So, so, that's, so this new generation forgot about the one true God and began serving these many lords of the Canaanites, these many gods. And it's, it's crazy how this happens within one generation. Like one generation, um, their parents were, were by no means perfect. They were flawed. Uh, they were half-hearted, but they did have faith. They did have faith some of the times. So what's the problem? Who is to blame? Tim Keller is a Presbyterian minister who, who recently passed away this year, and he wrote a book called Judges for You. It's, it's a great read, especially for this series that we're getting into. And he, he talks about this, this failure. Okay, In his book, he talks about this failure of generations passing faith down to the next generation. And here's what he says. He says, It is always impossible to lay blame neatly when one generation fails to pass its faith on to the next. Did the first generation fail to reach out, or did the second generation just harden their hearts? The answer is usually both. Mistakes made by a generation, a Christian generation, are often maligned, or excuse me, are often magnified in the next. Okay, and so isn't, isn't this always a, a generational fight that takes place? Like I kind of joked about this some last week, that, that the greatest generation um, blames the boomers for certain things. The boomers blame Gen X and the millennials, and there's, there's so much of this blaming for why people are the way that they are. And, and it's, it's kind of funny to hear people talk about it. Um, what's wrong with kids these days? Well, you raised us, right, is kind of the response, or... Uh, whenever I was your age, I had my house bought and paid for. Well, houses cost $4 back then. Yeah, but I only got a dime an hour, you know, working. And so there's, there's this debate that goes on, and, and whatever the, the reasons for that or wherever that lands, um, I, I tend to agree with, with Tim Keller. What he says is right in terms of faith is that this is a both-and thing because both generations are often to blame because think about it. You, you've seen this before that there are, there are moms and dads that, that take their families to church. They're here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, mission trips, special services. You, you know that they love the Lord. You know that they have a faith of their own. But for whatever reason, once their son gets to college, he turns and walks away from his faith, right? Once the daughter gets in the groove of life, she just finds kind of something else to do, right? And that's kind of scary as a parent, especially if you're raising your kids in the church, okay? That, that's kind of, that's scary for me to think about, right? As much as I'm trying to do, as much as I'm trying to sow in my kids and invest in my kids and train them in the ways that the Lord would have them go, we, we are by all means supposed to do that, and we should be doing that. I think that does nothing but increase our chances, but ultimately, it, it's, it's between them and the Lord. It's a relationship that your kids and the Lord need to have themselves, not just yours. You can talk about that. You can be authentic in your faith, but, but this is such, such a, an important thing uh, for us as a church to foster, okay? So we, we've seen that happen, right? Okay, parents who love the Lord, kids walked away. But we've also seen something else happen, where there are people that, that came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior whose parents weren't Christians, okay? Mom and dad didn't come to church, right? That, that now somehow along the way got invited by a friend or met someone who, who loves the Lord. Now they have... have thriving relationships with God and they lead their kids well and, and, and Lord has just revealed his beauty and grace and mercy in their lives. And so, 
How does, how does something like that happen? That doesn't happen without Sunday school teachers. That doesn't happen without small group leaders. That doesn't happen uh, without youth chaperones that are willing to be patient with loud, smelly teenagers. Right? This, is why, this is why children's ministry is so important. This is why youth ministry is so important. How are we, how are we passing along our faith to the next generation? How are we doing that? Okay, so for parents, parents in this room, how, how are you passing on your faith to your kids? How are you displaying that? Do your, do your kids catch you in the middle of your Bible reading time? Do your kids catch you in the middle of your prayer time? They, do they see you doing that? Right? How are you modeling that for them? Okay, and, and has this challenged you in some way? Right? Okay, for those of you who, who maybe the kids are out of the house, and they have been for a long time. Maybe grandkids are around, maybe they're not. Um, maybe they're all living off very far away. How are you praying for and sharing your faith with the next generation? This church needs you. It, it needs your wisdom, it needs your prayers, it needs your presence, and there's so many opportunities in which you could do that. And so over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're gonna get deeper and deeper into the text. And, and the book of Judges is gonna do several things. Um, one of them, which we talked about just now, is that the book of Judges shows us that this is a cry out from the next generation. Okay, we're always one generation away from falling away from our faith. Okay, this, we, we, we need you. The next generation needs you. It needs you to teach them. It needs you to, to disciple them and to love them and to lead them, even if it seems like they don't want it. And believe me, a lot of times, they won't want it. <laughs> but they need you. Okay, the book of Judges will also expose us, me and you. It will expose our tendencies to walk away from the Lord. Maybe when things are, are going right, maybe when things are good, it's going to expose our tendency to be complacent and to fall in the cycle that God's people fell into. Right? And so that's gonna, it's going to expose light on that and hopefully move us to a place where we're always trying to stir our hearts as to what God wants for us. And, and the last thing that judges will do is it will be a reminder that of every hero that we come across, every judge that we meet in the weeks ahead can only do in part what Jesus will do in full. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we, as we get into the pages of, of judges in the days ahead, God, we celebrate that you are gracious, that you are wonderful, that you're marvelous in all of the things that you do and, and all of your godness. And Lord, we pray that, that we would be found faithful in your sight, that we would uh, submit to what is good and right in your eyes and not our own. Um, God, we lay down our own preferences. We, we, want to, we want you to truly analyze some of the areas that we've done what's right in our own eyes and just disregarded what's right in yours. And so God, I pray that we would be about your agenda and your purpose. Um, we pray that you would rescue us from the cycle of sin and oppression that we live in and that we would be freed to love you with all that we have. Not perfect, not without flaw, but with the best that we have and, and the grace that covers over that. And so God, wake us up to the task that we have in molding the next generation of believers. May we be authentic, may we be real in our faith, and may we be transformed into the image of your son.
We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.